Good morning. It's good to have you here this morning. Welcome. To those of you who are here uh, for the baptism, I'd like to welcome you to our church. It's good to have you. Uh, the end of summer's here. We've arrived at last to the end of summer, and we begin, uh, which, what for me is my fondest time of the year. I love how the fall has holidays, different holidays. Labor Day, it's, you get one good one a month. September, you get Labor Day. October, you get Halloween. Uh, November, you get Thanksgiving, and then, of course, there's Christmas. And those are just great traditions, great traditions to have. And they are traditions. Um, You know, I'd say most of us celebrate Labor Day, but in our own way. Some of you travel. Some of you just sleep in. Uh, The same way with Halloween. You know, there's many different ways that people uh, enjoy Halloween or Reformation Day or whatever they want to call that day. You know, it's still typically a day surrounded by candy uh, and costumes and that sort of thing. Uh, and Thanksgiving, you know, we, we agree on Thanksgiving as Americans, right? You've got to realize the whole world's not celebrating Thanksgiving. Um, but we celebrate Thanksgiving, but in, in many different ways. Some of you watch a lot of football. Some of you are on the road. Some of you uh, overeat and take a nap. There's various, there's various ways. And then, of course, Christmas is the same way we have we have traditions. These are traditions. And we agree on uh, the most Americans and agree on some of the basic ideas around these traditions, but not everybody does because it's a tradition. Not every American celebrates Christmas. Not even every Christian celebrates Christmas the way that you'd like to think about it. I mean, some Christians are pretty anti-ceremonial about Christmas because of its pagan origin, and so they, they kind of hold it away and and celebrate Easter all the more. There's different ways, because this is a tradition. They're traditions. That's all I'm saying. And when we look into uh, the church of Christ, what we see is what is commonly referred to as many different traditions of the faith. You have Catholics and Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists and a few strains of Anabaptists and, and... uh, all sorts of non-denominational, assembly of God. I myself, my roots, my grandfather was a Pentecostal minister. My father was a Methodist. My wife is a Lutheran. I came back to the Lord in college through a Catholic, and I attended a Reformed seminary. That's a lot of tradition that's rolled up into this confused human. Uh, because they're traditions. And we look in, and what we see within the different traditions is a lot of variation on things. And you grow accustomed to these things the longer you live in them. So if you grow up Catholic, you have uh, uh, an appreciation for a different style of dress and music and service time and sermon time. You're going to be sorely disappointed with that. Uh, You know, you're used to short sermons and you're used to a mass and all of these things. If you're Methodist, you have your own set of things that you appreciate. And and things are varied, right? The contour throughout the church is very uh, diverse and dynamic. And that's because they're traditions, but not everything in the faith is tradition. And when we look at baptism, what you will see is there are almost as many different perspectives, nuanced perspectives on baptism, as there are traditions in the faith. Spins and perspectives, and, 
And we are inclined as the church to assume, and I don't mean consciously assume, I mean you walk away and you can operate as though baptism is the same as music style. That, you know, the way one church likes to do baptism is akin to the way they like to play music. But baptism is not a tradition of the church. Baptism is a doctrine of the church. And there's a difference. A tradition of the church is the, um, an area where we, in our worship of the Lord, the church has cultural permission by the Lord to grow and change and express itself before the Lord. A doctrine of the church is something where the Lord gives us direction on how it should be done with the full expectation that his faithful will do it well. And yet baptism kind of travels through the church in a very traditional sort of way, but the word treats it as doctrine. So this morning what I want to do is I want to, it's going to be a teaching uh, through baptism. I owe you this one, by the way. We, we preached on the marks of the church in spring, and I said, hey, I've run out of time. We'll do baptism when we get to a baptism. So here we are, and I hope you receive this as a teaching on baptism, um, on the doctrine of baptism. Uh, why it is that this physical therapy tank is in front of you this morning, which is a tradition, right? This is part of the tradition inside the doctrine. We couldn't get a river. Uh, So with that, we're going to be all over the scripture today, and so most of it's on the screen. If you wanted to pick a place, Matthew 28, 19 would be a place where you could open the Bible and and, uh, be have baptism in front of you. Uh, You could also do it in Acts 2 or Acts 8 or Acts 10 or Acts 16, Romans, 1 Corinthians. It's all over the Bible. And so we're going to be looking at that. And my intent, I'm going to give you, uh, the reason I've decided to put a lot of the text on the screen is because, and you can go back to the first one, Chris, but is, is because I want you to appreciate, A, I'm not trying to kind of extract the ones that help. I really have made an effort to be exhaustive, uh, and why I certainly could not be for the time given. The goal is to say the Bible's consistent on these teachings. And so what you'll see, if, if we go to the idea that baptism is a doctrine and not a tradition, what you will find in the text of the Bible is that baptism is a command. It's a command. So if you look in Matthew 28, it says, this is the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's what's said, right? That's part of a command. The command to the church, to the apostles, and by extension to the church, is that we would go and that we would make disciples and baptize them. In Acts 2, at Pentecost... Peter preaches this big humdinger, and uh, the crowd is stricken to the soul, to the core of who they are. And they, they cry out, like, what? What do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ. That's what you do. You repent and you're baptized. Acts 37 uh, or Acts 8, excuse me, there is no 30. Acts 8, verse 37. This is when Philip is traveling along the way of the road with uh, the Ethiopian. 
And the Ethiopian in the chariot is reading through the scriptures and Philip runs up and helps him understand the scriptures. And when he understands the scriptures, the Ethiopian turns to him and says, is there any reason why I shouldn't be baptized? Now this is in, it's quite surprising if you think that they met that afternoon and were baptized that afternoon. Somehow, the doctrine of baptism must have shown up. They were reading Isaiah, by the way. So Philip must have connected baptism with conversion. Acts 9, this is about Paul the Apostle. It says that Paul, you know, he met the, the Christ on the road to Damascus. The bright light blinded him. It says for three days he neither ate nor drank, and he was in his room, and he was blind, and, he was, and then the Lord sends a man to, to Saul, and the man prays over Saul and says, receive the Spirit, and it says that Saul got up, and he made a ham sandwich? No. Remember, we went three days without food or water. It says he got up and he immediately got up and was baptized, is what the text says. In fact, in Acts 22, this is Paul giving his own testimony in Jerusalem. He's sharing his testimony, and he kind of fills in the language of Ananias. And, he's, and, and Ananias says to him, now what are you waiting for? Go get baptized. There's an immediacy inside the command. Acts 10, verse 47. Acts 10 is about Cornelius, who is the first kind of formal example of the Gentiles being brought into the promise of Christ. And the Lord sends Peter to go speak to Cornelius and kind of prefaces or gives Peter the notion that something great is going to happen, and Peter goes to Cornelius, and he's sharing the word of God, and while he's sharing the word of God, the Holy Spirit falls on the room. Everybody in it, they begin to speak in tongues. It's obvious in the room that the Holy Spirit has blessed and made clean the Gentiles. To which Peter replies, who can prevent these people from being baptized? And he turns to his followers and says, he orders them to baptize them. Because it's, it's a doctrine. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi. Great earthquake. It breaks everything open. They're on the way out. The Philippian jailer is about to commit suicide because he's you know, essentially lost the prisoners on his watch. Paul calms him down, says, don't go. Uh, we're still here. There's this conversation. The jailer says, uh, he comes to him out, what do I need to do to be saved is the question to which Paul begins to describe, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. The jailer takes him to his house. He washes his wounds. Paul and Silas, they share the word of Christ in the home with the household. It says immediately the jailer and his household were baptized. I'm, I'm just trying to show you, not only is it a doctrine, but it's, it's a doctrine with a sense of connected urgency to our conversion. Now, I'm, I'm not saying, by the way, here's the warning label, I'm not saying you need to be baptized to go to heaven. Okay? There's no implication at all in this message. that I'm saying that the biblical record shows that when people come to faith, they are baptized, and that those who were placed as stewards of the faith, the apostles were commanded to do that. 
And it happens in an almost immediate sort of way. We see this. We see, and it'll make most sense to us when we see the baptism being closely aligned to conversion. When it's closely aligned, it makes sense to all of us. In fact, I even feel led to say today that there's not, there's not a big test. You don't find a big test in the text for someone who wants to come forward in the faith. It seemed, I mean, the, jail, the Ethiopian in the chariot, he comes to the faith that afternoon and is baptized. The jailer, in an hour of visiting in the home, he's baptized. It is maybe a caution. It's a, I'm a careful person. I'm a careful pastor. I want to visit. It's this caution and a check of the Spirit on me to not withhold baptism from people or to not separate their conversion from their baptism needlessly. And I'm here to say, I got more robes today. All right? Like, I just, I almost have to say that because I never do say that. Um, But there is a desire to say, if you believe, you should be baptized. Where it gets difficult is in some of the confusion of the traditions of the faith on this doctrine of the faith. What happens for someone when their conversion is not closely aligned with their consideration of baptism? Then it begins to feel a little less necessary. Is that, I think that's saying it right. That when you were saved at 10 or 12 or in young life or in college and years have gone by, let's say decades have gone by, and you've had a vibrant life in the Lord and you know you're saved and you have the Spirit and you've been in the church and 10 or 20 or 30 years have gone by, well, then it's, it's a little bit more like, well, is baptism still relevant or necessary for me? And I would say at the very least, I find no statute of limitations in the Word for obedience. So that would be a starting point. But I would also say that if you think of it like marriage, it begins to make a little sense. You can imagine a man and a woman cohabitating. They fall in love. They live together. They love each other. They have children by one another. They never get married. They just live together and love one another. And, you know, a year goes by and it still works. And just imagine this is a really good example, a good example of a cohabitating couple. And you know what I'm saying? Like a great example of like real love existing outside the bounds of marriage, which exists, right? Marriage is the ceremony is not some magic trick. People really love each other. But imagine 10 years goes by. Imagine 20 or 30 or 40. Imagine they're celebrating their 50th anniversary of their first date. But they've never been married. Would the Lord not say, like if they came under the hearing of the word of the Lord, would they not fall under the conviction to get married? Would the Lord not say, well, it's great that you're together, but you've never been together under me? Would the Lord not say, I understand, I'm not invalidating the realness of your relationship outside of marriage, but marriage is a sanctifying way of placing you beneath me and your union before the world to see? Would we not, if a 65-year-old couple walked in here and said, we've been cohabitating, but we just want God to know and want the world to know that I am hers and she is mine. Will we not all be like, right on? It would be cool. It's the same with baptism. Here's a way of thinking about it. The teachings of Christ and the teachings of the apostles, which came through the Holy Spirit, 
abolish nearly every single imaginable ritual and sacramental practice of the Jewish faith. They abolished the laws of cleanliness. They abolished the laws of special days, the laws of the temple, the laws of sacrifice, the laws of circumcision, the laws of festivals. They abolished all of those things as being images that point to Christ, but empty in and of themselves. Christ and the teaching of the Spirit through the apostles abolishes all of that, but they institute baptism and the Lord's Supper. That should cause us to pause on this doctrinal ordinance. God must be doing something big here. He must be saying something big here. And so we see baptism is a doctrine. It's a doctrine. And so you may say, okay, John, enough already. I know it's a doctrine. What does it mean? This is what it means. Baptism is an outward expression of your, what I'm going to call your lordship faith. It's an outward expression of, it's a way that you express your lordship faith in God. By lordship faith, what I mean is, It's the faith that proclaims Jesus as your Lord. Not Jesus as God. Not Jesus as the guy who's going to sprinkle pixie dust and get you into heaven. Remember, everybody wants to go to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. It's not, that's not what I'm, that's not the kind of faith we're trying to describe in the life of the church. We're not trying to describe intellectual assent to Jesus as being some historical figure who did a thing. We're trying to express commitment to Jesus as our God. And that's what baptism does. Jesus is our God. If that is not your faith, you are not in the faith. The only kind of saving faith that is present is the faith that Jesus is your Lord. Which means, in a sense, that when we are being baptized, we are telling the world that I am beneath and under the service of God. I follow him. You are, in essence, swearing fealty to Christ. That's what you're doing through baptism. You're bowing through the waters and saying and expressing to the world and to whoever and to the Lord himself, you are Lord of my life. And I will follow you as such. That's what's happening here. And you see this. You see this in the very text that we visited. You see it by the order. The order of the ways that things show up. The way that there's kind of a a spirit of loyalty that's being expressed through baptism. And what I mean to say is, look at the order of the language. Matthew 28 says, go, make disciples, and baptize. What's the order? We make disciples, and then we baptize. We cultivate and harvest true faith in Jesus. What does disciple mean? It means follower. In other words, the teaching to the apostles is go find and make followers of Christ and baptize those followers. Acts 2, 38, at Pentecost, who was baptized? It says those who accepted the message were baptized. About 3,000 were added that day to their number. Those who what? Accepted the message. Acts 8, when Philip is witnessing in Samaria, it says, but when they believed, 
they were baptized. There's a faith, a following faith that's present, and that faith is expressed through baptism. Saul. Saul has an encounter with Christ, has a visit from Ananias, has the spirit work to give him his eyesight back, and in all of that, he's turned back to the Lord. He's immediately baptized, and he's, from that moment on, he is forever a servant of Jesus Christ, a radical servant from that moment. It's a mark. Cornelius and his household, they believe, the spirit comes on them, and they're baptized. In every single case in Scripture where you can see the narrative of a baptism, you see that belief is, precedes baptism. True faith precedes baptism. Now listen, we don't think this way because we're Baptists. We think this way because the Word of God says it, and that happens to make us Baptistic. Because it's not a tradition. It's a doctrine. This is the doctrine of God around which our tradition has rallied. Christ wants to signify faith. Faith that equals following. A following kind of faith. Isn't this consistent, by the way, with the gospel? This is very consistent with the gospel. The gospel that calls us to be followers. That the act of baptism would signify this very kind of following spirit. If you think of the two ordinances together, Lord's Supper and baptism, you begin to try to, just tell yourself, they abolished everything else. They turned down every other ritual of the church and then instituted these. They must be significant. And you just think, the teachings of the Lord's Supper is that our salvation comes only through the intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. We are solely dependent on his body and blood shed on the cross for any kind of life. You cannot take the Lord's Supper and not appreciate that you contribute nothing to your own salvation. We take Christ in as the sacrifice and the new promise. And when you follow the Lord's Supper up with this, it, it, the, the teaching is profound. It's saying that your faith is expressed. So one is saying only Christ can do it, and the other one is saying, and that faith which we have makes Jesus Lord of your life, and it is naturally expressed to the rest of the world. I know some of you, this is we feel, so none of us would say it, but I think we would feel this way. We feel that our faith is very personal and private, I can't see your heart, so it certainly is invisible to me, but faith is not private. It's not private at all. Faith expresses itself in visible ways. If your faith is private, you have no faith at all. It sounds like a strong teaching. The Bible has no problem saying that. If your faith does not manifest itself in a way that is expressed to the world that manifests Christ, it is no faith. And baptism suggests that. Baptism is a seminal way at the onset of our conversion that we say, Jesus, you are my Lord, and I want to express that. First Peter says this, and this is what the water, the water symbolizes baptism. So he's transitioning from talking about, believe it or not, Noah. He's talking about Noah. 
And he says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Listen, not from the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The theology is rich there. He's saying, listen, you, the, the waters don't save you by virtue of the fact that they wash you. There's nothing, this is H2O. There's nothing in here that's washing you that's unique into your salvation. But you are saved by the faith you express because the faith you express is a pledge of a good conscience towards the Lord. And then Peter, I think, even qualifies himself there. He says, not as though that even saves you even. He says, it's the resurrection of Christ that saves us. The power of salvation comes through the resurrection of Christ. It's our faith, our good conscience before the Lord that secures the reward of Christ. And that is expressed in baptism. And so we see that baptism is a doctrine of the church. And it's a doctrine of the church whereby those who are faithful express their faith, their lordship faith, to the world. To which you maybe will say, okay, I get that. But what does it symbolize? I mean, so why... Why is it so messy? Why is it embarrassing? Well, I would say it is a picture. Baptism is a, is a picture of hope. It's a picture of present and future hope. It symbolizes our present and our future hope. It symbolizes the hope that we have, hope that will happen to us, and it also symbolizes our belief and faith in the hope that we currently have, a present hope. And so you'll see, you'll see that we have a future hope that's expressed in baptism. In baptism, a person dies in the water. They die. They go down as though they would die, but they are brought back up again, as though the grave has no hold over them, as though they will be risen, raised just like Christ was raised in the resurrection. That points to a future hope a future hope of glory, of us truly physically resurrecting to be with the Father just like Jesus Christ currently is. That's what's happening in baptism. The picture is beautiful. Romans 6 says this, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from dead, from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. When we baptize, we, we paint that picture for ourselves and for the world. We paint that picture of even though I die, I shall live. We paint that picture as after death comes life. There's a, we paint the picture of the grave has no hold on us. The, the whole picture is, is that life wins, that death is conquered, that the grave is no more. The very things we sang this morning are present in the image of baptism. But it also symbolizes a present reality. So it symbolizes something that will happen to us, but it also symbolizes something that has already happened to us. When we, when we are in faith in Jesus Christ, we are a new creation. That's just true. 
When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it isn't now simply that you're a human being that's going to wait until you die to enjoy the salvation that God has in store for you. The salvation that Jesus has in store for you is not on the other side of death. The salvation that Jesus has in store for us is present immediately at conversion. As a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in us. Why? Because we are a new being. We are new. We're not driven solely by the flesh, but now we have the Spirit resident in our conscience and in our soul that counsels us and defends us and pushes us the right ways and convicts us and comforts us and seeks the Lord on our behalf and prays the right words on our behalf. We have all of that. Why? Because we are already in Jesus Christ. We are already saved. Salvation is not about getting to heaven. Getting to heaven, or whatever that means, is the culmination. It's the consummation of something that has already begun in the heart and life of every single believer. If you are in Christ, you are new. Paul says this about baptism in Colossians. Just listen to the, listen to the language, the ever-present language. In him... You were also circumcised, he writes. And putting off the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Having been buried with him and having been raised. There's a very real sense that you are already resurrected. Now, I know you're thinking, no, I'm not, because you haven't died and because life still stinks. I'm not saying it's consummated. I'm not saying it's fully culminated. I'm not saying that everything has fully happened. But I am saying we should not miss what has already happened. Just because everything hasn't happened doesn't mean that we as Christians should have a spirit of reluctance and timidity that nothing has happened. If you are in Christ, you're new. There's a sense that Christ puts baptism on the front end of your salvation so that you immediately begin to live as though you were in fact immortal. Is not a Christian immortal. A true Christian is immortal. He will have life. He will not die. And even though he dies, he will live, says Christ. Do not the greatest Christians that we know of live as though they were immortal. And in fact, die as though they were immortal. Because they are living in their new life now. We put baptism right on the front end of our conversion as, as a way of saying, from this point on, I am new and I am different. I have a new God. I follow a new Savior, and that gives me new life through the Spirit, which allows me to do and say things that I would not have done or said previously because then I was subject to fear and I was subject to the flesh. But I am no longer because I have God. That's why baptism happens now. Otherwise, why wouldn't we just baptize dead people? Why don't we just push baptism all the way to the funeral and do it then? Because if it's not happening now, then it's happening then. I 
God has already saved you. You are immortal. God has already forgiven you. You have been washed clean. God, God has already made his dwelling place in you. You have received his spirit. Many Christians want to wait for salvation, and in the meantime, they live reluctant and timid lives that do nothing in anticipation of a future hope. They don't experience the joy of his salvation now. They don't experience the power of his spirit now. They don't participate in the glory and work of the kingdom now. And baptism is a, is a way, it's a symbol to say, it begins now. For those who step in this morning, it is begun. For those of us who watch, who are in the faith, who need to be reminded, you are not your old self. You are not living under an old promise. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Baptism is a doctrine of the church. It's a doctrine whereby those who are in Christ express him as Lord of their life. And they do so, and in doing so, express the hope they have in a future resurrection and the hope they have in an ever-present resurrection, which is with us. Amen. Will you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we lift up this morning not just those who will be getting baptized, but all the eyes and ears that are watching and listening. Father, help us set aside the trappings of cultural tradition that at times uh, weave themselves like vines into your holy doctrine. Lord, allow this baptism not simply to be a source of rejoicing, but a source of conviction for those of us, all of us, Lord, who uh, sometimes can forget that we have your presence and power in our lives. Father, help us to see the change that's happened in our lives, the change that's come at your hand through the work of your Spirit. Help us to see that as evidence of your residence in us and the fact that the promise of salvation has long been at work in our lives. Lord, I lift up those here who wouldn't call themselves Christians but would call themselves friends of the church who have attended and, and been fed and have gained a spirit of trust and and have come to, to look at your Bible as true, Lord, I, I, would just, I would pray that your spirit would place all of this in front of them and say this is, this is the gospel that's being played out, that through Christ alone we have hope, and our hope comes through faith that follows after him, and that through that faith we are washed of all uncleanliness, and we are made new, and we are received 
as sons of God. Sons and daughters. If you're here this morning, I invite you to to pray that way, to approach the Lord, to confess, Lord, I'm not what you I'm not what you've called me to be. I am in need of you. Th- that realization, if 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 you can meet with the Lord with that knowledge that you are not what He made you to be, and you cannot be it without Christ, you're at the right place. And if you're there, you can pray this morning, Lord, help me to follow you as Lord and Savior. I swear fealty to you. You are my God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you've uh, prayed anything like that, my response to you would be, you need to be baptized. Uh, I'm not certainly not insisting on this morning. I, I do understand, but I certainly don't want to uh, say on any day but this morning. So I'm here throughout the morning. Um, during the fellowship time, I usually stay in this room. I'd love to visit with you and to talk with you uh, and just help make sure that you, uh, you don't have any questions about what you're committing to and, and who you're following. Uh, and I, I just pray, I'm grateful that we, we all get to see here, this, be here this morning and, and watch this baptism. So if you would, uh, would you please stand with me?